0: stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up
1: for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special.
0: The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you. That civil registration isn't just
1: common sense, it's the law.
2: Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined
0: tonight by my co-host, Patrick Green. How are you doing? I'm doing so great. I'm partially doing so great because one of my favorite faces is looking back at us right now. Jamie, you're one of my other favorite faces. This is not taking away from you and your lovely visage. (laughs) But we have with us tonight, Dr. Robin Bunce, all the way from the UK in the middle of the night, once again, back with us again to talk about something that I know he loves very dearly. And I will get to that momentarily, Um, but I will cede the floor to you, Dr. Robin Bunce. Thank you for coming back on.
1: Thank you for having me. I wouldn't have missed this for anything. It may be 2.19 a.m. over in the United Kingdom, but it's, you know, never a better time to talk about Blade Runner.
2: It sets the mood, doesn't it?
1: Oh, so does. Oh yeah. No, massively. Yeah. Darkness. That's what I'm talking about. Yes.
2: Well, today's episode, this evening's episode, we're here to talk about the architecture of Blade Runner 2049. This is something that we've been talking about for a while in terms of planning an episode. We wanted to have our friend Robin on the show to discuss this. There's a lot here. We've discussed uh, terms like brutalist or brutalism as it relates to Blade Runner 2049. And we're in this series and uh that's devoted to Blade Runner 2049 and we are essentially on the two-year mark by the way of the film that was yesterday October 6th mark sorry three-year mark
0: three years of
2: of the release of Blade Runner 2049 and it feels like it was yesterday to me like I still I feel like talking with Patrick on his way home from England trying to get to the theater was like two days ago but it was three years ago it's crazy,
0: isn't it? Crazy. Uh, so I don't think I don't think I knew you then, Robin. Did I? I don't. This is when when 2049 came out. I don't believe we had met yet, but I was at the time like about 35 minutes away from you. You know, right right as the film was coming out, and I flew back on the day of the premiere in the United States. So if I if I'd known you, I, you know, I could have stayed an extra day and we could have gone and seen the movie. But unfortunately, we discovered you because of the piece you wrote for the New Statesman. Um, a few weeks after the film had premiered. And we were like, oh my God, who is this person? We have to get him on the show. But I wish I had known you then. But I do, I have a That's segue right. actually here. I have a segue, which is that when I did finally get to hang out with Dr. Robin Munson in person in England in, whoa, what month was that? Was that last May?
1: Of oh, I that thought was it was May, I think. autumn. It felt dark when we met. We met at about six o'clock in the evening and it was already dark. So I think it was the autumn. But Maybe I, it, was, it was the autumn. My memory is not good on such matters.
0: Neither is mine. I don't even know what year it is right now. Well, actually, I do because it's 2020 <laughs> and it's horrible. But, uh, but uh, anyway, my point being that the first thing that we did, so I, so I met you on the bridge that was crossing the, the Thames, legendary place, mm. the Houses of Parliament were right in my periphery. I had mm. been dropped off by a black London cab. I see Dr. Robin Bunce coming, this uh, uh, unexpectedly tall figure <laughs> striding across <laughs> towards me um and uh, and the first thing we did was go tour some incredible buildings by the by the waterfront um
1: and that's not quite a, the like, first thing we did the first thing we did is i gave you a flapjack
0: oh that's true the first thing we did was you gave me yeah. because i love
1: flapjacks i did it, that was so sweet we I had a that discussion type. about flapjacks before we met so i thought i would follow that discussion up by it. presenting <laughs> you with one
0: Jamie, they're not pancakes, okay? If, you, know if, you're you're like, if you're like, if you're in
1: Alabama, that's a pancake,
0: okay? I don't know. <laughs> Clapjacks are these incredible little bricks that they make over there with oats and and sometimes fruit and sometimes chocolate and sometimes other sources of protein in them and they are these like little tiny like glazed sometimes kind of like stuck together almost like a granola bar but Mm. but something way more special than that which i had over visiting at the headquarters or the old headquarters of our organization (laughs) it is not a scone and i I would hoard these things
1: Scone. Scone. they're called scones scones <laughs> scone is a mispronunciation in my view anyway sorry, sorry Is it really anyway you brought me a flapjack and then you said okay now let's go look at some
0: architecture because you and i have been talking about mm. architecture for forever mm. it's something we both love and it's something that mm. like it, i i feel i feel like you know england is one of the great centers of this tradition in the world and it had a very big impact on the design of 2049 mm. and, and indeed roger deakins even said that you know like london brutalism was one of the main sources of inspiration for a lot of their production mm. design so getting to see that in person with you and getting to tour the royal theater and all these things it was just an uh, just such a fun trip so this is something that means a lot to you i know that from a first hand mm. perspective
1: oh yeah yeah and we should do it again and jamie when you're in england next time let's go and see some concrete why not well, you know
2: and have next a flat time, patrick the- <laughs> I'll I'll bring the syrup Um, (laughs) uh, the next time Patrick flies over there I'll just fly with you Patrick how
0: about that I think that sounds absolutely wonderful I think the problem is that we're not allowed to go anywhere Jamie we (laughs) can't even go to Canada right now I can't even go to Rhode Island we can't even go to the next state over it's unbelievable but there will come a time where that Mm. fog will rise and we will once again sit in a noodle bar with Dr. Robin Bunce Mm, Talk about punk music and flapjacks and architecture and all those wonderful things. And Mm. tonight, we're going to get a taste of that. Kind of like a flapjack. (laughs) Tonight, we are talking specifically, as Jamie mentioned, about the architecture of Blade Runner 2049. On a previous episode, we went into the conceptual artwork that went into the film using Tanya Lapointe's kind of recently released book, uh, Interlinked, which is wonderful. And uh, tonight, we are starting to dive a little bit into Tanya Lapointe's previous Blade Runner book, which was The Art and Soul of Blade Runner. We're not going to get into the full book tonight because it's 700,000 pages and it weighs more than 12 cars. And it's just a huge book that deserves- it Weighs as episodes. much as three flapjacks. It weighs <laughs> at least three <laughs> flapjacks in imperial units. Um So tonight we're going to focus specifically on the architecture because uh, the way that the buildings are built in Blade Runner reflects a lot of the built environment in other ways too. And the way that the built environment looks typically reflects- the people who live within it.
2: For sure. I mean, I I think the segue into this conversation was sort of a disagreement, not a disagreement we were having. It was a disagreement that you were having, Patrick, with, I don't even know if I would call it a disagreement. It was trouble with the word that they were using. The term that they're using is, was it brutalism? You're saying it's not real brutalism or it's not contextual. It might look similar, but it's not... If you want to, because that was a discussion when we first were talking about this and talking about having an episode, that came up. And I think that there's two ends to it, but there's so much to this because I think I, I love the architecture in the film, I love brutalist architecture. Um, and I know what they were going for. It inspires a feeling, it inspires a mood, but it's more than that. It's more than just inspiring a feeling and a mood. It's about inspiring imagination and being memorable and being all of these things technically. Um, so it's working on two levels. So maybe in one sense, it's not working. It isn't what it's supposed to be. But in a metaphorical sense, in an emotional sense, it's everything it's supposed to be. Um, so that part I'm still confused on.
0: Well, and and all those things you said that were so, you know, exciting and inspirational and uplifting have nothing to do with my incredibly pedantic personal hang-up on the way that the word brutalism gets used. This is this is just me being a, a picky asshole who likes this architectural style a lot. And I will not trip up this conversation with it too many times, but I will say at the outset, because I think it is worth saying for sociological reasons too, which will come up at some point in this conversation, that brutalism. Capital B Brutalism is a particular school of design thinking that specifically came about in the middle of the 20th century as a response to new building materials and new ideas about affordable housing and affordable living spaces. And it's tied to a very particular set of architects, most famously early on Le Cabousier who thought that you could make these, you know, monumental structures that would house many people, that would be raw, that would be unfinished and unvarnished, and would only be complete once people moved into them, that it would only find its its beauty when life came into um, inhabit it. The problem is that the term brutalism comes from beton brut, which basically means made out of concrete, like it's made out of raw concrete, right? Um, which in french like doesn't have any connotation with brutal in terms of being imposing and harsh and you know upright and, and scary and monolithic but in every in most other languages around the world brute has some connotation of that right it's a very masculine very kind of you know imposing word so what i, what I think happened is that this word as it spread around the world and became this movement of you know brutalism became associated with things that were brutal and things that were kind of, um, you know, oppressive in some ways. And because a lot of the middle of the 20th century, when this architecture came about, um, was characterized by the tearing down of things and by the, you know, the debt, the desecration of old, you know, architectural monuments because of the second world war and because of, you know, bombings and because of all these various things. And then in that, in in all of those, you know, empty spaces, brutalist structures popped up because they were very quick to fabricate and they were very affordable. Um, I think a lot of people saw it as this statement um, against something as opposed to what actually I think was kind of a humanitarian ideal, which was building things that people could afford to live in that would be improved by their presence. Um, And because of that, I think what's happened a lot in a lot of cases around the world because a lot of buildings from that era have fallen into disrepair. they Unfortunately, one of the characteristics of concrete is that it gets dirty really quickly because it's porous and because it has holes all over it and because things get stuck in those holes and you really have to hose it down quite a bit. And I think what happened is people started to see these things as eyesores to be kind of left for somebody else to deal with or torn down. Um, and of course, if you've ever tried to tear a concrete building down before, you know, it's not very easy to do. So a lot of people want to get rid of it, but it's expensive and costly to do so. So... My point being, brutalism as a movement has nothing to do with being scary and imposing and being harsh and oppressive. Brutalism as a movement is actually, in my opinion, a very humanitarian ideal. The word "brutal," though, obviously, is something that applies very much to the things that people are associating with brutalism and in the way brutalism has kind of come into being, uh, thought of. I think so. It, it's just this. It's this very, like I said, pedantic semantic thing that is not worth getting super hung up on. And I'm not going to like be annoying about it. Even in the book, the art and soul blade runner, they screw that up all the time especially Dennis Gassner, who is brilliant, and I'm not taking anything away from Dennis Gassner, but he misuses the word brutalist like just over and over and over again. It's a really easy thing to do wrong. And it is okay to do that. And I think that for the purposes of this conversation though, just to make it clear, because we will be referencing the historical brutalist movement quite a bit in this thing. If we can try to like, if we're using it historically, make it brutalist. And if we're using it metaphorically, make it brutal. Or you know, as an adjective, make it brutal. I think that might kind of clear things up. Uh, Robin, do you have anything to add to that?
1: No, not really. Um, other than yes, it is, it is. I I don't know, I, I suffer from that pedantry too. It does vex me greatly when people misuse the term. Um there are very few terms I care about desperately, but because I love the architectural aesthetic so much, you know, I am I'm I'm prepared to um, I'm prepared to make that hill I'm I'm gonna die on. But yeah, I don't know. I think I'd later on in the conversation, I think it might be worth talking about the relationship between brutalism and modernism and the kind of relationship between um, architecture and postmodernism. But I, I'm sure that that will come up in due course.
2: As we discuss brutalism, it's a term or, or brutalist or brutalism, whatever. I get confused all the time. I didn't know that there was a term for cement architecture until I met you guys three years ago. Um, but it's always something that's really spoken to me. I don't know why, but I love cement architecture. It just, and what's, what's, it's interesting about it is hearing the term brutalist or brutalism to me, it's always felt inviting and comforting to me. Like when I see buildings and structures made out of poured cement or however they do it, um, there's a, uh, an image that I shared on, um, on Instagram that I think you liked, Robin, uh, of some crazy brutalist building, which is just beautiful. It looks like a Jenga. It looks like Jenga, like it just, all these um, whatever in it, it's just amazing. And I, what I love architecturally about 2049 is that sense, is that sense of comfort, is, that se- is whether it's uh, Wallace's building in the interior, It's brutalist, but it's also very warm and inviting. It's very, um, it's very, it's, yeah, it's asking you in. It's asking you to be at ease. Um, But then eventually it gets to, it turns into something very insidious and it does not feel safe. But I don't know. So that's sort of my entry into this discussion. I know that there's a lot of different, or there's a, a few different, architectural styles going on in Blade Runner it's not there is the brutalist element um but there's also other things like for instance the 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 building that Kay is sitting in with Gaff um which is very very different than say one of the buildings that they're sitting in in Las Vegas or or the LAPD building or the Wallace Towers or um i don't know there's there's several other locations as well but yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's very interesting. Um I, I do love architecture. I've loved it all of my life. I've always been a fan of uh the arts and crafts movement, uh Frank Lloyd Wright and his influences and who's he's influenced himself, um, and the idea that they're using a very uh I would almost say it's not dated it's not a dated form of architecture, but it's not something that happens much anymore but they're using it in the future um, because it does feel futuristic. It's very interesting.
0: So if we can start maybe kind of towards the beginning, if we're gonna kind of talk a little bit through some of the built environment that they're inhabiting, I think a good place to start would be Mobius 21, which is the name of Kay's high rise, um, which we see pretty early in the film when he's walking through these, almost looks like Chernobyl dusted streets. Um, Before we get into that, I I wanna say it's interesting in reading the art and soul of Blade Runner, again and again, they referenced um, China as, as part of the inspiration for the look of the film. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the haze and the fog around cities like Beijing and this sort of this the the super is Megalopolis, I can't I don't know how to say that. megalopolis megalopol megal- Robin, how do you say that? Megalopolis?
1: Um oh.
0: <laughs> is it a megalopolis uh, or a megapolis? Oh, I think you can go either way with that. I don't know. Right. I've never said say, it out loud. I'm going to say megalopolopol. Mega it's a it's a megalopolopol. The <laughs> idea being these these enormous cities, right? You look at a city like, for example, in Japan, Tokyo, right? Like Tokyo is is you know a city proper, but there are these huge sub cities that just border it and build it up into this just enormous conglomeration of people, right? London is an example of that too, right? Dr. Bunce, right? Where you have the city of London, which is this very small little thing. And then you have all of, you have Kensington, you have all of these sub-cities and these sub-regions around it that build in this huge swell of people. Um, and so the, the Los Angeles that we see in 2049 is very much that. It's a super city, right? And what we saw in the middle of the 20th century as cities began to take off as these just enormous, um, you know, population centers serviced by things like you know, sanitation or relative sanitation and electricity and transportation and public transportation and all of these different things that allowed humanity to get in clumps that big is you saw affordable housing need to take off as a solution for what to do with all of those bodies, right? Um, and the, what you see a lot of the time, and I, I love to get Robin's um, thoughts on this, uh, are buildings like, for example, in England, Robin Hood Gardens, right, which is uh, the Smithsons, Allison and Peter Smithson. It's the city in the sky concept where you have these huge, huge buildings that are um, linked together into this kind of fortress almost kind of a thing. And this is an early, very vivid example of brutalism as a social experiment, right, as something that was designed to provide quick, affordable housing for people. So I want you to talk a little bit about that, Robin, if you you could. And also just for our listeners to keep in mind that this is basically what we're seeing in 2049. We're seeing affordable housing, right? As he's walking up through that huge mega apartment block, he's passing people who are, you know, clearly uh, not doing great, right? They're like poor. They're kind of living in the, all- in the hallways. Um, and yet the building itself rises up into the air. It seems like something that um, took a lot of thought and resources to build, and yet it's fallen into the state where it's become almost derelict. Um, And I think that that says a lot about the society, but also about what happens with a lot of architecture like this. But but Robin, what, what do you know about this whole city in the sky stuff?
1: So the Smithsons had this concept, um, streets in the sky, was their big idea. Um, and it comes out of, so the Smithsons built their building in around about 1974, 1975. Um, so it's after a whole bunch of building that takes place in the late 60s. So the late 60s approach to brutalism in this country, in Britain, was kind of the Erno Goldfinger version of brutalism, which is to say it's Trellick Tower, it's Balfron Tower, it's these massive um, it's these massive high rises of, of 20, 30, 40 storeys. OK, so by the by the end of the 60s, they built many of these high rises. And there is a growing sense in Britain that high rises are a social problem, that they're creating social isolation because lifts break down and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and people on the top floor just get stuck there. Um, so the Smithsons come up with a new approach to housing, which is to say, well, let's not build that high, let's build it along and let's try and recreate community where you have streets in the sky so the idea was um that um i don't know if you have these things in america i don't know if you've ever heard of a milk float have you heard of a milk float
0: is that a euphemism
1: no that's not a euphemism <laughs> i never know what these british terms I don't, I don't know may maybe it should be a euphemism. Should be, maybe yeah. from this day onwards it's going to be a euphemism <laughs> from now so, on in Britain in the 70s, the way you got milk, there—what you know, supermarkets were still a new thing. Um, a a milkman would deliver you a, a pint of milk or two pints of milk or whatever um, on his milk float. Um, and a milk float was an electric truck, um, which is just slightly wider than a car. Um, anyway, so the Smithson's big idea was, well, let's make the walkways, these streets in the sky, the width of a milk float okay and there's a famous example of um, a brutalist um, streets in the sky development in sheffield um where the idea it's like six stories high and it's, it's the zigzag structure and it's, it goes on for miles and you can drive a milk float from you know from from number one all the way through four five six seven all the way to a hundred you know on the seventh floor and then down again so this was the idea of streets in the sky the idea was to Um, avoid the social isolation of of high rises by recreating community in the sky with these real live streets. Okay, so doors would open onto the streets, kids could play on them, milk floats could drive on them. Um, The Smithsons building doesn't quite work in that sense because the Smithsons designed something um, and then the um, you know, London County Council or whoever was financing said, oh, I, look, we haven't got the money to do all of this. We need to cut it back. You know how it is with these kinds of projects. So Robin Hood Gardens as built doesn't quite work on a Streets and the Sky <clears throat> in, in terms of the Streets in the Sky concept. Nonetheless, I think Robin Hood Gardens has all kinds of really fascinating features um, which um, make it a fascinating, brutalist building. As an aside, I have a piece of Robin Hood Gardens in my house house. They demolished half of it two years ago. And I, I wrote to the guys who were demolishing it. And I said, can I have a little bit of it? So they sent me some it's literally in my way. Um, I love that building. Not least because it's kind of named after me, Robin. Um, so, <laughs> it's named in your honor. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It really is. Um, actually, no, that's not true. I'm named after Robin Hood, but so we have a shared name. Um, love it. So, yeah. So the thing I loved about Robin Hood Gardens was it was simultaneously kind of very imposing um, and also very intimate. So from the outside, you have these cliff faces on two sides, creating this artificial valley. And to stand in the middle of it is to be overpowered by the scale of the architecture. But when you get onto the streets in the sky, and I've walked the streets in the sky, and you look into the houses, the spaces are very intimate and very beautiful. And very you know they're lovely. And um, So I think it brings together these two aspects of brutalism. On the one hand, it is very imposing from the outside, but when you're in it, it's warm and it's cozy and it's your own little space. And um, so it's both of those things. Um, in terms of the buildings that we see in 2049, what I'd want to say about brutalism is that it goes through a series of phases. So initially, as I say, you've got these big high-rises, and then they're building the slab blocks in Britain as a response to the perceived failure of the high-rises. But in both cases, it's a very, very optimistic architecture. Okay. I think the difference between the brutalism that we see in Britain and the brutalism we see in America, for example, and on the on the European continent, and the brutalism we see in 2049 is it's using similar architectural techniques as far as we can see, but the, but the optimism is gone. I think what we see in 2049 is kind of fortress brutalism. This is brutalism which is not forging into a bright new future. This is Brutalism which is effectively forming a life support system around a dying society. So I think that's the kind of big shift which we see um, between the brutalism as built in the 60s and 70s and brutalism as it's imagined in the film. And, and in that sense, the brutalism of the film is kind of like big bunkers. And my reading of, um, of LA in 2049 is what they've done is they've created a bunker on a city scale And of course, as we know from World War II, bunkers were often, or bunkers, German bunkers, English bunkers, British bunkers were different. But German bunkers were routinely built out of poured concrete. So I think in that sense, it's kind of taking brutalism back to um, kind of the origins of the first experiments of the material going on in World War II. And and the brutalism of 2049 is the brutalism of the bunker.
0: There's something really interesting in that. I think that there's a lot of brilliant points in there, Robin, but one of them that I really uh, think is is fascinating is that the actual aims were identical, I think, in real-world mid-century brutalism in our world and in the world of 2049, the brutalism that arises there. The reasons they were doing it were the same, but the motivations behind the reasons were actually opposite to each other, right? So in the real world, in the middle of the 20th century… People wanted buildings that were concrete because they would afford affordable housing for people of different social status, you know, statuses and classes to be able to live in proximity to one another and in proximity to, you know, the inner life of the city. They were um, monumental and difficult to break down because, you know, the world had been ripped into shreds by World War II and people were trying to rebuild and they didn't want things that would burn. I mean, cities around the world burned down in World War II, right? And they, they wanted things that wouldn't burn. Um, so they made it strong so right so they made it cheap and they made it strong and they made it massive to accommodate population growth which was driven by economic prosperity by people having the ability to move and live where they wanted to be right and in and, and some ways and so they would get into cities and then the cost of living would be high and they would need an affordable place to be but the, the idea being that there was an aspirational element i think to a lot of those things whereas in 2049 they were you know uh cheap because the people who were left on world couldn't afford anything else and they were stuck in these cities that they had no choice but to be in because they were the only habitable places left in the world, right? They were um imposing and difficult to break down because the world was so harsh that no materials could survive unless they were granitic like that, unless they were things that, you know, it would take a nuclear bomb to to blow apart. Um and I think I think it's interesting that like and this is something that you and I have talked about a little bit. The ways brutalism was used in you know, for example, the West versus the way brutalism was used in, you know, Soviet states, which I guess is kind of kind of the West, but you, you know what I mean, um, is very different because in a lot of, you know, like Soviet, a lot of Soviet brutalism, a lot of things that you see that are still standing from that era are like imposing and harsh and frightening because they're supposed to project this air of intimidation, right? And in 2049, we see a little bit of that. I think we see this idea of these structures kind of drowning out people because they need. You know, it, it's just that there's no consideration for the individual person. Um, so that's a really, really interesting point.
2: What I do find interesting in terms of the creative decision to go with the aesthetics that they chose. Um, if I think about, uh, I was just watching a, a short video on 2049 earlier today, and how, if anything, the aesthetics, the the characters are lost in the in the architecture of their time. Like these buildings, these structures, they they take up the most space more than anything else. Like, if anything, there's these huge buildings and there's not a lot of people. Um, and I think that might have been the case in the original film, but you really get that sense of isolation. They're really using this the architecture in 2049 to give you this sense of isolation and aloneness. Yes, this might be grand and beautiful, but you are alone in it. Um, and that's also a, a it's a thematic element in the film as well the idea of being isolated the idea of maybe having a companion yet you're still alone the idea of you know the vastness of of Los Angeles area um 2049 um and this lone spinner flying you know above all of the the um whatever those fields are that in the in the opening scene um the only real scene that you see in terms of architecture and a lot of people is the scene with, I mean, yes, maybe the street scene, you see definitely a lot of people, but the only other scene where there are a lot of people present is the scene with Gaff, where there's a few people within that, within that context in this retirement home, I suppose that, that what that is, but really it's the sense that we, yes, there's, it's like a, it's like a lost civilization. And I feel like they chose, that's what uh if I think of brutalism and not just that, but the other creative choices, architectural choices that they made, it's it all feels like a lost city. Of course, embodied perfectly mm. in Vegas. It is a lost city. It is it is it is a relic of a time gone by. And okay, Deckard lives there, but maybe there's one other person that lives there. But really, people are suffocating under the weight of technology and architecture. And that's the only. It's like the the last thing that people will remember from us if we perish off this planet, is what we built. Um, and that's what really speaks to me in 2049 is what we built for ourselves. And It's outlasting us. It's outlasting our own humanity. And that really, really comes across in every quadrant of the architectural uh, decisions that they made for the film.
1: Mm. I know, I completely agree. And I think that's the thing which distinguishes the brutalism of 2049 from the brutalism that I'm familiar with from London and um, the idea that in 2049 the brutalism completely dwarfs and the individual is completely lost in it whereas the brutalism as it was built in London in the 1960s and the 1970s was designed to be the opposite of that. So I'll just give you an example. Um, one of the big ideas in high-rises in Britain was that it would replace the church steeple Okay, as um, as society became less religious, as church became less a part of it, the idea was that the big high-rise towers would provide punctuation in the urban landscape, so that you could point to it and know where you were. So brutalism, in that sense, it opens up the landscape; it makes it easier to navigate. Also, the brutalism of the 1960s and 70s was conceived in the context of circulatory systems of flyovers okay, and of, of motorways. And the idea, again, was you'd have these very high towers and you have these very low roads and you could see where it all went and it opens up the environment and the individual can then navigate that really, really effectively. The final thing I want to say about brutalism in the 60s and the 70s, again, it's about openness. It's about letting the individual know where they stand in the context of architecture, is the brutalism of the 60s and 70s was about form following function and therefore you know one of the big things you can see in Brutalist buildings is you can see the big elevator towers really highly expressed in the architecture you can see the stairways highly expressed in the architecture the windows look like windows the elevator shafts look like elevator shafts the whole point of the architecture was it signals to the person where you are and what the building does and and it opens up the landscape for the individual to navigate really really effectively through these circulatory systems and through this expressive building whereas in 2049 the individual is completely lost everything brutalism yeah it's all concrete architecture or there's all rather there's lots of concrete architecture but there's no circulatory systems you can't you know if if you're at street level you Cut off from the sky, you're cut off from everything. So I think that's the big difference. Brutalism in the sixties and the seventies was about opening the landscape up and allowing the individual to navigate and have a sense of place. Whereas Brutalism in 2049, the individual is completely lost in it. The you know the architecture, rather than opening up the space, it closes it down and it destroys any sense of space at all. Um, and I really feel that when you're at street level in 2049, you could be anywhere in the city. You've got no concept of where you are. In the original Blade Runner film, I always felt whenever there was a street scene, you got a sense that this was a discrete place with a particular location. Um, And I don't get that at all in 2049, and I think it's part of what the filmmakers are doing to kind of make the individual feel lost in this incredibly uh, monumental architecture.
2: you guys, though. I haven't heard that yet from you. Like, What is it that draws you in? We all have, and I wonder, sometimes people can't explain, explain it. They, they can't put it into words when a structure, because whether we're talking about brutalism, or arts and crafts, or many of the, the different um, historical movements in architecture, it speaks to us in different ways. And sometimes people don't know why it speaks to them. It just does. And I'm curious what that is for you. And why that might be in
0: in the realm of 2049 in the realm of 2049 i I don't know that my answer just got screwed up by that well i guess okay okay, then i I can get i can get to that i can get to there hang on let let me let me let me pull it back for a minute so so i want to go back to something that i think will get me to this answer so What I love about brutalism specifically as an architectural movement is, is very much what Robin has been talking about, which is the optimistic anything can happen nature behind where it came from. In, in the United States, I grew up um, right next to Yale University, which is where I live now. And, uh, and Yale University, of course, has a, a really long and rich tradition of, of the Yale School of Architecture being one of the sort of beacons of a lot of modernist movements and brutalism, etc. And Paul Rudolph was the, the chief design architect there for 30 years or something. So I got to grow up seeing tons of Paul Rudolph buildings. And Paul Rudolph was somebody who took, you know, the fabrication methods behind brutalism and just exploded them into such wild and fun and fanciful directions. So, for example, um, you know, Robin was talking about exposing the... Uh, the structural meaning behind parts of buildings or or the functional meaning behind parts of buildings. Uh, Like a a great example of that being, of course, Trellick Tower, which came up earlier, right? Where the elevator tower was separated off from the main building, right? Paul Rudolph's buildings did that with everything, with air conditioning shafts, with ventilation ducts. It was all so exposed. It was like looking at a skeleton turned inside out, made monolithic and enormous and something that I could look up at and think, oh my God, look what people can do like look what we did like it's this the sense of whimsy and fun and extraordinary belief in the capacity of humans to build things so for me like i got to grow up around that a lot and that was something that meant a lot to me and then um i think part of my love for brutalism also isn't is particularly just the what concrete represents to me i think which is something I, i think just absolutely wonderful i love the tactile nature of it i love how humble it is i love how uh if it's allowed to fall apart, it will fall apart and it will become varnished and beautiful in, in that way too. But I love how, if it's meant to last, and if it's taken care of, it will look really clean and really refreshing and really new, almost like polished stone. Um, but basically I think it all comes down to optimism for me with, with brutalism. And I think in 2049, what's interesting is that it passes this threshold where um, the, like some of the aesthetic considerations behind brutalism are taken and they're totally divorced. Like you both have been saying from like the actual reason that those things exist. It's like taking the, it's like abstracting what makes a brutalist building and just using the, you know, the aesthetic elements of it without the reason that brutalism actually came into being. And I think that that means that uh, it's, there's a sort of a haunting hollowness to it. For example, in the Wallace Corp headquarters, which which I hope we get to spend some time on tonight, that's a great example to me of something that is in some ways aesthetically brutalist, but in absolutely no other conceivable way actually has anything in common with brutalism as a design movement or as anything else, really. The structure of the Wallace Corp building reminds me most of the architecture of Louis Kahn, who is an architect that I just adore. Um and and Louis Kahn's whole thing was so a great example of his architecture is the Salk Institute, which I think is near. It's it's in La La Jolla, California, which is near you, right, Jamie? I don't know. It's a it's a it's a, it's a research sure. institute, but it's it's this it's this. Um, if anybody has seen it, this when I think of walls building in, in terms of real world corollaries, I think of the Salk Institute. It's these um, austere sort of column buildings that are just like totally. Uh, austere is the way way that i put it there it's very geometric and very simple and very unadorned and very monolithic and then separated by water flowing so you have these like rivers flowing through this building that is just these huge imposing columns and and louis Kahn as an architect to me is very much the sort of wallace aesthetic in that it uses a lot of the trappings of brutalism in that it's concrete for the most part It's usually pretty large. Um, It's usually civic or or it's usually for some sort – it's not really for affordable housing, but it's usually some sort of a monumental civic architecture. Um, And it uses these things, but it, it then hides all of the function behind it. And it basically creates very simple geometries that emphasize the scale that they're at. So when you look at the Wallace building, right? You see these triangles that are just like, that they just don't, they don't make any sense because they're so huge, right? If it were a complicated building, like if it were that ziggurat shape that we see in the first film um, for, for Tyrell, uh, it would become incomprehensible because there'd be just too much going on, all these tiny lights everywhere, all these things moving around, it would just start to look fake. But because a simple shape can hold its form at those kinds of scales, and because a simple shape is something that doesn't really depend upon other objects to give it – what am I trying to say? A simple shape is something that is um, – because it's simple can be enormous, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I think that that's part of why Wallace looks the way it does. So the incredibly long answer to my question from you is optimism. is is what really attracts me to architecture and design in general for most movements that I'm into, but brutalism in particular, because I think it represents a unique time in the 20th century and a time in the 20th century that has been largely forgotten about, although the aesthetic trappings of it remain and finding back the reasons why things were built the way that they were built is a really fun journey for me personally, as just a fan of this stuff. And I think it's something that draws me back.
1: Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm not part of enough conversations where people say the reason I love brutalism is because, you know, I'd love to be, those are my kind of conversations. The reason I love brutalism, well, there are several. First of all, um, my parents took me to brutalist buildings when I was like a toddler and then all the way through up until I was a teenager. So I have very happy memories of spending time with my parents in large concrete buildings, specifically the National Theatre on the South Bank of London and the Barbican Centre, which is, um, uh, you know, uh, part of this is in the city of London. Um, both of which are big arts centres. They're brutalist in in different concrete finishes, but they're both incredibly beautiful. Um, So yeah, first of all, I associate them with my parents. Secondly, when my parents took me there, I was just overwhelmed by stepping into the future. The interior of the um, National Theatre is the closest experience I've had to being inside the Death Star you know it's, it's just incredible um and uh, and similarly the barbican because of what you can do with concrete and steel they create these huge internal spaces with these big pillars and it's just it is it's like being in the future um so those are kind of the reasons why i love brutalism growing up um why i love it in 2049 i think it's simply because it's there um 2017 um was a period in which um certainly in england i don't know what was going on in the united states but in england there was a kind of brutalist revival going on um you know lots of hipsters were you know recolonizing brut- um, brutalist buildings brutalist buildings were being regenerated and i just felt like it was a nod um in by the filmmakers to what was going on culturally in this moment um in britain so i liked it for that reason in terms of lewis khan oh my goodness what an architect that's just that's just incredible um the thing that always strikes me about lewis khan is his statement that architecture is about light and silence and it's and it strikes me that what you get in the wallace building in in wallace's kind of throne room um, you get light and you get silence. Um, and, you know, and and as Patrick says, you've got the beautiful geometry, um, which is, you know, very, very Lewis Kahn-esque. What a genius that guy was.
0: Oh, my God. Uh, one of the great geniuses, like up there with with Frank Lloyd Wright, for example, who's come up a couple of times in terms of his incredible ability to use built spaces to express things. And one of the other things I wanted to say quickly while you mentioned that is that Lewis Kahn's buildings almost always have apertures to allow light in in very specific ways. And what I love about the Wallace building is that although it's this enormous, you know, triangle, that there is light and shadow and water and movement playing throughout the whole thing. So it's this enormous static thing that's still, that is always in motion. And Louis Kahn's buildings are like that. They're just these these huge, huge, huge buildings with these huge openings in them that are just allowing air and water through and stuff. And it makes it so that this huge rock structure feels like it's breathing. It's so cool. And it's so Wallace to me.
2: What's interesting about Louis Kahn, um, the I don't know what structure uh, the when he goes to the orphanage and eventually he finds the the um, furnace again, but the geometry of both sides reflecting like an Escher painting. Louis Kahn's um, aesthetic is very similar to that, where it feels like a reflection on both sides. You can look straight down it, and it seems like the exact same thing. On each side, uh, Brutalist architecture is a little bit different, has a different whole, I I don't know, um, implementation than that. But that's also a little bit um, uh, evident in 2049. Uh, But what I I, I will say, what I do love about Brutalist architecture, and for years, I I couldn't even tell you. I mean, I I couldn't, I, I remember just walking by, whether it's places in L.A. or Chicago where I was born and raised, and seeing buildings that were formed in cement and feeling like it was calling me. There's something very primordial and elemental about it. It's stone. Um, And it speaks to me the same way the pyramid speaks to me in some way. It's very primordial. It's um, It's the elements of the earth reformed, essentially. I mean, it's ground up rock and mud to make a structure. So I feel like what moves us about the pyramids, at least for me, moves me about brutalist architecture, where it's a return. They're reshaping it differently than the pyramids or buildings and structures built by the Romans, you know, by so many societies throughout human history. But it's another evolution of that same idea. And I feel like that's what speaks to me, where it feels like it's the future and the past all at the same time. Um, I remember looking at, uh, I wish there's a building in downtown LA. And I was, I think I was with both you and Dan. I think, remember we were walking outside it and there's this, look, it looks like a ramp and it's
0: all. Yeah, the theater that was right next to where yes. we did the live show. Yeah, yeah I fucking yeah. love that. Yeah, I have so many pictures gorgeous. of it. Yeah, it's, and it's and tiny. It's this little building, but it's, it's so very cool. Oh, I it, love that but
2: building. It called me, like it was calling yeah. me into it. There's something about that architecture that's like... It's like stone-speaking life, if if, if, that's the only way that I can describe it. And again, it is both future and past. And I don't know, like... I love arts and crafts. I love the mid-century modern aesthetic. But they're very time and place. Brutalism does not have time and place. It's always. It's forever. Like, those pyramids don't seem like, oh, yeah, that was whenever they were built. They feel like they, they have been here forever. It's like... um. It, it, it's, it's just one of those things like the ocean. It just is. It's just there. And it's comforting. And I think for me, I'm someone who's always looking for home. Brutalism feels like home. Um, and it, it, the irony is the way it's presented, the way it's utilized in science fiction is to create the opposite effect, to make you feel distant, to make you feel alone. When in fact, for me, it feels like comfort. It feels like, um, yeah, just like comfort. Um, and I, you know, I grew up in a big city and we d- definitely in Chicago, there's a lot of those structures in the big city, but they're not everywhere. You have to go look for them. Largely Chicago, the downtown area, the old neighborhoods, a lot of cobblestone streets, a lot of, um, uh, what are those houses called, um, Federalist. Uh, no, no, it's not Brownstone, but it's, um, What's that guy who built the town in Chicago, um, for his workers, um, so that they could work and live very close by? Oh my God!
0: For the meatpacking stuff. Pullman.
2: Pullman. Um, <laughs> so there's a there's a whole neighborhood in the South Side of Chicago that was built by this guy named Pullman. I can't remember his first name right now, but we'll say it was the, Bill. It
0: was Bill Pullman. I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it looks. They're, they're row houses. That's right. So row houses also have their place that 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 old world architecture that harkens back to like england and to to the roots of the old world but brutalism and or cement tears through all that it, it 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 tears through it in a way where i don't know it you can build a structure today and you wouldn't know when it was built reality even that 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 image that i shared on instagram I don't know when that image was built. It could have been built 50 years ago. It could have been built last year. And that's one thing that I love about it. It it, it tells its own story. And I, I, every time you look at it, it's an, and it's a different one too. Um, it's fascinating to me. I I'm, I get lost in it.
1: It's really interesting what you're saying about it being simultaneously futuristic and also kind of megalithic. And I think that's one of the joys of brutalism, the idea that in the 60s and 70s, you had architects based in Western Europe and in America who were self-consciously trying to relearn architecture from the beginning and going back to kind of megalithic temples, going back to the pyramids, going back to Aztec um, ziggurats and, and learning architecture from them and incorporating those kinds of motifs In their work. So, absolutely, I love that about Brutalism, the way it's both kind of the future and the past.
0: Um, I, I want to. I'm bookmarking for myself the the honesty about materials thing because I think that's something I want to circle back to. But something you said towards the end that I want to just throw out there too also is that there's something really unfortunate in, in that brutalism took off in places that were at latitudes that weren't good for concrete. So like where I grew up, there's brutalist buildings all all over. I mean, it was like huge in in New England for some reason. I mean, Boston is, had Boston City Hall is a very famous example of it. There's there's brutalist buildings everywhere, and they're all constantly being battered by the winters and by the rain and you look at england it's the same thing all of these 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 places where all of this architecture exists is is really inhospitable for concrete and and i think that um that might be part of the unfortunate phenomena that we observe of of people kind of falling out of love with it um but going back for a moment so so i think good architecture is always honest to the materials that it's created from right And what I love about brutalism is just what you're saying, which is that not only is it uh, honest to the material, it celebrates the material, it celebrates the simple honesty of it. Look at the context in which brutalism took off in the middle of the 20th century. Say the 60s and 70s when it really kind of exploded, right? That is the era of disposable goods. That is the time when plastics just blew up. That's when polystyrene blew up. That's when all of these things that are filling landfills around the world, these petroleum byproducts, were um, taking off because it was a time when people could afford to throw things out. It was a time when people could afford to not hold on to things, right? And and it was a time when buildings. We're almost uniformly going up with some sort of a steel frame structure, like a tube structure or some sort of a lattice structure, and then with a curtain wall being put over the outside of it. So all of the high-rises that you see in buildings, in Chicago, for example, which I have to say is an architecturally resplendent city, and I cannot wait to go back to it. I've been there three times now, I think, and I I adore Chicago. Um but uh, the architecture of Chicago is very much modern high rises, which is very much characterized by steel curtain, by steel frame structures and curtain walls. And the idea with that is that the load bearing elements of these high rises are, you know, steel that's welded together, which is then hidden forever. It's like it's a, some sort of a dark secret and nobody talks about it. Right. The actual building itself isn't that glass thing that you see. That glass thing you see is a costume it's wearing. The building itself is inside of it. And then they just hang, literally hang this glass thing via these mullions and things going down the sides of the building. Um, And that was happening all over the place as a result of the international style and modernism and all over the world. And then brutalism said, actually, the thing that you see is the thing holding this together, which I love. Not in all cases, right? In some structures, there's, there's steel subframes, but in a lot of cases for things that weren't absolutely colossally huge The actual load-bearing structure is the structure you see when you look at it. And the structure you see when you look at it is made, like you beautifully said, Jamie, from dirt. It's made from just ground-up shit. It's just made from the stuff you're walking on transmogrified into something beautiful and something huge that can house people. And I think that that, that that's what, when I talk about when I talk about the optimism that's that's really what I'm what I'm seeing in it too and the honesty of it and just the the, the beauty and the fact that it feels like home because home is the place where you can be yourself right like in, in my life like my definition of home I think is the place where I can be most myself and and brutalism is an architectural style that pretends to be nothing other than what it is which is ungainly and honest and strange and load-bearing and beautiful and I think that's why it's really special but going back to 2049 for a moment if we if we can, And you can, of course, jump in and and derail this. I I I feel like we should try to circle it back around. It's going back for a moment to the forms of brutalism being used in interesting ways in 2049. The LAPD headquarters, I think, is really, really fascinating. So in, in The Art and Soul of Blade Runner, we learn that the LAPD headquarters was one of the first designs that they settled on and they kind of saw it like that was it, right? As we talked about in our previous episode, the Wallace Corp headquarters was one that they kind of went back and forth and back and forth and they went all these wild different designs for it. They couldn't really couldn't really figure it out. The LAPD building, they got the form right away. It's the only, you know, visible government structure. It's the only thing that we see that actually represents any kind of a, you know, societal organization or organizing principle, right? Um and it towers over everything in its immediate vicinity. And it's very very structurally simple. It's basically just this oblong shape, this upright, that then culminates in this inverted ziggurat. And that inverted ziggurat or that flipped upside down triangle um, is something that we see. It's and it's it's I don't think it has the stepped sides of a ziggurat, but it it it's basically it's not quite a pyramid. It's not sharp, right? It's this sort of rising triangle. That's something that we see in brutalism all the time. I mentioned Boston City Hall a while ago. Um, Which I love, and I've sent you both pictures of walking by it on my lunch breaks many times. It's it's a it's a building that most of the world hates. It's been voted the ugliest building in the world on many polls. I think it's absolutely astonishingly beautiful, Um, and it is that exact shape. It's a flipped upside down triangle, Um, and that it's it's interesting. I don't I don't know what that says about the way it's used in twenty forty nine in particular, but it's an example of a building that actually doesn't look brutalist in any real sense other than that because it's not concrete as far as you can tell. It doesn't have any of the other aesthetic trappings of brutalism doesn't have repeating geometries, right? It's, it's basically just uses this brutalist shape to call to mind this idea of like an imposing structure. Um, and yet in doing so, I think, uh, it, it accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish, which is that it's not, it's, it's, it's sort of anti-beautiful. It's, it's not something humanistic. It's not something that looks like the expression of somebody's, you know, architectural career aspirations. It looks like something that was built to bully. It looks like something that was built to look down upon from. And I think that it really accomplishes that. I think that the LAPD headquarters design is is another just immediately iconic element. And it was also the first one, I believe, that Weta fabricated the miniature for.
1: Yeah, no, I love the LAPD building. It's incredible. I remember when we see it, you know, you get a flyover shot. Um, And I remember seeing it for the first time in the cinema and being completely blown away by it and loving the inverted cigarette thing. Now, it seems to me that I think in my discussion of brutalism, I have to some extent overdetermined the extent to which brutalism is an optimistic and um, kind of socially progressive movement. Because it strikes me that there are, you know, there's the brutalism of Franco's Spain, which we couldn't call at all socially progressive. Um, There's the brutalism of the Soviet Union, which is clearly very ambivalent. Um, And and notably, you've got radically different political philosophers in Franco-Spain to the Soviet Union, to Britain, to America. So brutalism has had its roots in, or has emerged in all kinds of different political contexts. One of the places that brutalism undoubtedly has its roots is in the last year of the Second World War in Germany and in Austria. and I'm thinking particularly about the flak towers that were built by the German army or the German regime or whatever it was um, in the last year of the, the last years of the war. I've just sent you a JPEG of a flak tower and the reason I've sent it to you is it strikes me that the LAPD building, looks very much like um, some of these Flak Towers. There is at least one which has the inverted triangle on top, and all of the Flak Towers have the circular designs on top, um, which you see very clearly the circular designs on the LAPD Tower. And it, yeah, so it seems to me that the brutalism of the LAPD Tower is not the socially progressive brutalism of Trellick Tower, Robin Hood, any of the civic buildings in America. It's the brutalism of the Nazis um, in the last year of the war.
2: The flat Towers, it's very, they're beautiful. They're very beautiful. When I see it, the the image, it reminds me of a beacon. I don't know why, like a beacon of man, like a last vestige of man, like saying, look, we've accomplished what we've accomplished. Um, in terms of 2049, I, I feel like everything we're discussing or as it relates to architecture pivots around K and his experience of the world. Um, where when he's walking in the Wallace Tower, we're walking in the Wallace Tower with him. We're we're in awe of this this space that feels like heaven, essentially, compared to the hell that he descends to. He little, he, he, you literally, you literally ascend to the Wallace Tower. You you go up, and in there is light and shadow and water and all of all of these elemental things that are toxic outside of that environment. Um, and what's interesting also about the Wallace tower is we think it's wood, but you don't know if it's sometimes, or oftentimes for me, I don't know if it's wood or if it's marble. So it, or, or some type of rock. It could be both of those things. It could be a myriad of both of those things. We're not really sure. Um, except for maybe the the archival, um, cabinets that he's taken in by the clerk. Those certainly look like all wood. Um, but whatever those things are, they seem um, very rare. You have to be very rich to afford it. Um, and it also looks like it's a little bit of a heaven on earth because why would you want that on on that planet? Most people are probably living off-world. Um, at least the people that, in in their eyes, who matter. Everyone else, much like 2019, is down below just to police the people who either aren't healthy enough to leave or can't afford to leave. Um, But the Wallace tower is a a direct reaction to that fate, to that decision. So it's almost like a prison at the same time. It feels like a prison. It does. It's not like those towers don't look like, like with Tyrell, those buildings, the, the, the pyramid buildings, they're, they're full of awe and wonder Whereas with uh, the Wallace Towers, it is full of depression and oppression and um, uncertainty. And then you go inside and all of that stuff is still present with splashes of water, with splashes of wood. Um, And you are Kay in that environment sort of like amazed by it. Um, And again, I feel like he is our avatar for this world we're experiencing all of these things with him and he's this little ant lost in all of this cement lost in all of this wonder um really not really knowing or probably caring at least initially where his where he belongs in that he's a replicant he's there to serve that's his job he lives in a box he goes to work he makes his money that's that he doesn't ask any questions um because that's what he was made to do um so I think um, it, it's it's fascinating to using his eyes to see architecture that we're familiar with in a whole new way. We relate to that architecture in 2049 in ways we don't relate to it in real life, in my opinion, at least for me. I'll speak only for me. I see those buildings differently. Um, I see the buildings in, in 2049 very emotionally different than I do in 2019. I have a different relationship to them. They feel less familiar. Um, I would say I feel more at home in Las Vegas, which we haven't really discussed yet because it's a very different aesthetic. It's more Egyptian. It's more um, what's the term that they use for their picture writing? The Egyptian. Hieroglyphics. Word. Yeah. It's very hieroglyphical in my opinion, if That's a word. Um, but yeah, it's it's my relationship with, with that environment via K is very strange. You feel like a stranger in a strange land, even though they're all things that we've seen before. Um, and I don't know if we ever feel comfortable with 2019. Those buildings might have been refashioned but they're all very f- buildings that we we've walked to now, whether it's the Bradbury building that we've been in before. Those are things that we have an emotional and historical relationship with because we've been there in 2049. All of that is gone. Um, there's no familiarity with any of it. So it feels both cold and almost like a, um, a message in a bottle at the same time.
0: Uh I, I want to go back to something you we were talking about with the Wallace Corp for a second, which is which is the use of space in it and materials in it and what that signifies about Wallace as, a, as an individual and the corporation. Something that has been on my mind a lot is how this pandemic that we're unendingly living through is uh, really helping rich people out quite a bit. And, um, you know, we, there's a a statistic that was released, I think today that said that billionaires have increased their wealth by an average of 27% during the pandemic and Jeff Bezos being one of them, one of the prime beneficiaries, you know, I I was opening a package from Amazon today, of of course, because that's how I can get shit, you know, I had to get new soaps, but I got it from Amazon, Um, and it was an Amazon smile thing. So, you know, it went to charity. Uh, one one millionth of it or whatever. and it's had a statistic on the outside that said something like 180 million dollars have gone to charity from Amazon Smile. and I'm thinking like that that wouldn't even register as pocket change for Jeff Bezos's wealth at this point. like the 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 audacity of even saying that is just it's just so ridiculous to me. And I've been thinking a lot about what do you even do with that? Like at a certain point, because you can't just invest it in the world because it won't be used properly. You can't just like, I mean, you have to set up a foundation like Bill and Melinda Gates have. And then it's a very long process of using that money in a way that will be not just uh, causing more issues than you go into it with. Right. So you get to this point where you're having, you're approaching a trillion dollars in wealth. And like, what do you, what do you do with it? Where does that wealth sit? Like what, what does it actually look like? And in the case of Wallace, whose wealth I think even makes Bezos's wealth look incomprehensible. It goes into this building that is so needlessly wasteful and ridiculous. This building that is the tallest building you know we we would ever have seen. It's taller than you know the Kingdom Tower that they're building right now in Jeddah, right? This thing that is just beyond scale that doesn't have floors in it it has these building these individual levels in it that are like 500 feet tall and there's no reason for it and everything's echoing like they're walking around you can't even understand what anybody's saying because the acoustics are so stupid in this place because it's like just a bunch of cathedrals stacked on top of each other for no reason but there is a reason it's to house a god that's the reason Right, it's it's a it's a monument to himself, right? It's 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 a it's a way exactly. But there's but from a business standpoint, totally, totally, right? It, It is it is almost like anti reason. And it's so, it's so wasteful. And the materials, like you said, Jamie, that they're using are materials that are deliberately scarce, that are not deliberately, they are specified to be scarce in the movie, right? The, the amount of wood, the amount of clean water, it's all of these things that are precious in and of themselves that are also not in anybody else's pocket. Like everybody else around this ridiculous building is starving for water and starving for health and thinking wood is gone and thinking nature is gone. Right. And then there's a guy who has so much of it that he just builds cathedrals upon cathedrals to sit on top Mm -hmm. of like some ridiculous God. Um, And then I think what's, what's so fascinating is that he spins it because he tries to come across like he's some sort of, uh, you know, Buddhist or something. He like, you know, like he's sort of above all of this and he's blind and he can't even appreciate it. He just like sits up there ensconced in this dark, beautiful room. When in reality he knows exactly what he's doing. You know, this is, this is, a conscious decision to hoard resources like that. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was really money laundering. Like, I I feel like in in a way he's just like basically getting his assets so that they are so spread apart that nobody can even trace them anymore. Mm. Um, And I just think that it's uh yeah, the Wallace building is, it just, it just says, it says so much. It's so instantly visually iconic. Like the first time I saw that in the movie, I was so in love with it as a concept. Mm. I thought it was so brilliant. And then it's one of those things where the more you think about it, the more hideous it becomes. And I love that because I think that's kind of the point, you know?
1: Oh, yeah. I love the Wallace Building. And there is so much going on with it. Um, in terms of the Wallace Building being influenced by the brutalism of London, I think there are, there's one detail which very clearly shows that. Trellick Tower and Balfront Tower in London have, both designed by Erno Goldfinger, have a very specific um, orientation of windows. So that the windows are slightly offset and they kind of go up in rows, and there's this kind of beautiful, it's like a kind of bar chart going up and up and up. And you see those windows outside the data storage room when Kay is standing there with love. And I think that's a very clear kind of homage to Erno Goldfinger and the way he orientates his windows. But that's a very, very small point. I think there is so much going on with the Wallace building and so much going on in terms of what brutalism means and how brutalism changes. So brutalism, as, we, as, as we've been saying earlier, is about being clear in expression and showing and being open about what architecture is you know you're open about the materials you're using you're open about how the building functions all that's expressed through the design the wallace building is the complete opposite everything is hidden okay so um i mean the wallace building seems to me it creates its own shadow it's so big it creates its own shadow to hide it Okay, so whereas the brutalism that we've been talking about is very expressive and very open, the Wallace building is very closed down. Okay, it expresses nothing other than power. The second thing I wanted to say about it is that the brutalism that we've been talking about comes with attendant public space. So all of the big brutalist buildings that were built in Britain in the 60s and 70s are all situated in large amounts of public space, which is often very green. Okay, the Wallace building, by contrast, is situated in its own, it's got its own, what's the word, its own territory. It's got its own airspace, hasn't it? As far as I can work out, it's not even part of the jurisdiction of the Los Angeles city. Okay, it's got its own airspace. So, again, whereas the brutalism we've been talking about is all very public and therefore very democratic, the Wallace Corporation is the complete opposite. It's very private. the other thing I, that's always fascinated me about the Wallace building is the relationship between the walkway, the staircase and Wallace's chamber. And the reason I say that is that the, um, the thing about the walkway is that it has these beautifully tapered walls. Um, and Wallace's room is, is a cube with a very flat ceiling. The relationship between the tapered walkway and the chamber looks to me to be the same as the relationship between the grand gallery and the king's chamber inside the biggest pyramid in Giza. And the thing which makes the king's chamber unique in all the pyramids in Giza is it has a flat ceiling. Okay, that apparently with the architecture that was incredibly difficult to do back in like 500 BC or whenever it was created. But you know, but the 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 clever guys who built the grand pyramid worked it out. It seems to me that they are there's all kinds of architectural references and all of what they're doing with the architecture is emphasizing that Wallace is a god or at least perceives himself as a god the final thing I'll say on that point is that being the biggest building in LA and being the super tall building clearly there seems to be a Tower of Babel reference there and of course the Tower of Babel you know that's when human beings are trying to imitate God and trying to become gods so I think as a bit of design, it's just gorgeous, not least because of all the ways it's playing with architecture and it's playing with brutalism and it's playing with the history of architecture to communicate these points to the audience.
2: But conversely, if you, talk, if you, if you think about when, for, when love first goes to see um, Wallace and say, you want to see the new models, what does she do? She ascends into his throne room, essentially. Um, and then he says to her, an angel does not enter the kingdom of heaven without a gift or something like that, whatever those, whatever the words were. That, I, I, what we're not talking about in terms of what those structures are is we're in one of them where Wallace is, but those structures house the assembly of replicants. He, that, that, Those structures are the kingdom of heaven. Those those are where angels are born. And when we see one, it descends from its birthplace, whatever that is, to be presented to God, you know, what he believes. And so that structure is obviously built, he built it, or he had it built with his plans to represent he is the savior of mankind. He is their new Jesus Christ. He looks like him. He has his angels. You know, he, that's what he was. You know, he, he, uh, synthetic farming saved mankind. Mankind was going to starve and human god stepped in. And that those towers really, really represent that. And even the, the light and the dark, like the, if you think about Genesis and you go, there will be light. Um, and the way the light moves in on the water, um, That was some of the first scriptures in in Genesis are about blight and separating water from land. And then you have this essentially this island in the middle of the water. So it's all of this uh, religious um, text made made three-dimensional. I mean, that's how crazy he is. That's how nuts he is. Um, in terms of him thinking I've saved mankind and man and then by in response the the local governments or whoever runs the show has given um, Wallace complete autonomy. Um, and he's probably the richest man on earth, no doubt he can do whatever he wants to do. Um, and then I think about that short film where he's talking about um, making you know, Allowing them to allowing replicants to then be made, and that discussion he's having with the um, diplomats in that one room—that um, was the moment where they gave him all power. They gave him. They let God be God. Um, and again, uh, that those towers really, really represent what that means for him. Um, and it's God is both. If You think of the divine, it's both terrifying and awe inspiring. That's exactly what those towers are, too. Um, they're beautiful, but they're also deeply
0: insidious, yeah. Fearful symmetry for sure. Absolutely. Um, he uh, it, it's so uh, oh man, there's a point. I i, I want to get back to the umbilicus thing that came up a moment ago, but uh, you were just mentioning something else that I wanted to get back on, and I'm losing it because it's late. Oh my god, what was it? Wallace had. That- Wallace credit quarters. I don't know. I, I, let me see if I can get back around to it by going back to the, the previous point, which was you, you mentioned the machinery by which the replicants drop down, right? Oh, I remember what I was going to say. There you go. Um, it's interesting that just like Tyrell, Wallace chooses, or at least I don't know if he chooses, but he's on he's on world, right? So everybody else, even close to his social status, is nowhere near the planet Earth anymore, right? Um, and and it's and it's something fascinating that fascinated me about Tyrell in the original film, but also more so about Wallace. Is that like he could go anywhere that he wants to go and be in a much happier place, but instead he chooses to create his own world within this hellscape that he is somehow still a part of, even though he doesn't need to be anymore, right? Um, And that's something that I think is so fascinating, that he put all of this time and these resources into making himself this prison, this like super prison that inside which he was locked because he can't go outside because it's unhealthy to and because he doesn't want to touch anybody, right? He doesn't want to be out there with the common folk. So he builds this, this ridiculous prison for himself instead of just taking off and going off world and doing what every other rich person does, um, which has its own you know, character considerations, I'm sure. Um, something I want to mention is that, uh, you know we were talking about the umbilicus before from which the replicants dropped down. It reminded me of how in the Art and Soul of Blade Runner book, Steve Jobs comes up at least a couple of times And um, part of why he's coming up is because they're saying what would happen if in a world where he didn't exist, where like he didn't come along and we didn't have smartphones and we didn't have the internet and we didn't have all of these digital first things, we didn't have social media, et cetera. If the technology as it existed in 1982's version of 2019 basically continued on that path, right? So they thought like, what would it look like if we didn't have basically the iPhone? So Steve Jobs comes up quite a bit in that context. But what's interesting is that there's a lot of very Steve Steve Jobsian aspects to Wallace, not the least of which is this really intense emphasis on hiding the uh, function of something or on hiding, not hiding the function of something, on hiding uh, the how something works. So when they were designing the original iPhone, one of Steve Jobs' primary concerns, and he communicated this with Johnny Ive and the design team over and over and over again to the point where it was ridiculous, was that it should, the ideal iPhone ultimately would be something that was only a black mirror, basically. You can't see anything else on it. You have no idea how it works. You can't open it. You can't see the battery. It should just be a magical mirror that turns on and can take you anywhere. So the idea was to negate any semblance of this is how this works and to make it magic. Wallace's, all of his technology operates on that same principle, I think. And the umbilicus is a great example of that, where we have no clue where the hell this replicant is coming from. All we know is that she drops down fully formed from this plastic plastic. Tubing, right? From this, this, you know, laminate thing, um, as this like fully formed organism. And we never see where she comes from. We never see see who's behind her fabrication or how. We have no idea what's going on with that. When they go into the memory archives, there's no th- there's you you never see the function behind anything. All you see is the end result of it. You don't know how these things are being archived. You don't have any any idea of like what's going on behind the scenes. When we see the interior of the walls building. We never see actually anything moving or going on. We never see anything being conveyed anywhere. We don't see other employees. We don't see anything. All we see is magic and form, right? And so there's this aesthetic consideration that I think is very Jobsian, even though they were trying to get away from the Steve Jobs idea, which is that they are basically making it seem like magic. And and to me, that that, that makes a lot of sense because I think a lot of sort of tech entrepreneurs go for that. They go for being able to sell miracles to people and a miracle is something you can't figure out how it works right and and i think that uh that's part of what's behind that and also like i, I love how it leaves so much to the imagination like great fiction does right like we, there, we, we have no clue what's going on behind those walls we have no clue what's going on to the floor that she dropped from we have no idea of any of that all we have is our own dreams and our own thoughts um and i think that that is is a really intelligent filmmaking choice
2: Interestingly enough, though you're using the term miracle, and there's that moment when when Wallace is in his tower talking, and he is then robbed of his godhood because he can't perform that miracle, that mystery, that last mystery that man has that just happens by nature because that's how we were either designed or created, um, and that all of those all of his surroundings. Then just become ideas because he hasn't, he isn't God, um, and he does use a term. I don't want to get obviously too far into this, but I, I Wallace and his surroundings to me are both one and the same. Um, where they're they're cavernous, they're mysterious, they're insidious, they're malevolent and benevolent in some ways because you don't really know where Wallace is, but his his buildings also represent is this What are there dark secrets in this building that are going to um, affect me personally or affect Kay I should say Um, because then he discovers Deckard there he discovers Rachel Rachel there Rachel is then born again in the Wallace Tower so God then brings another angel back Um, although I think conversely I think if we're talking metaphorically and I'll just leave it here because I don't want. We've talked about Wallace before, but Wallace is actually Lucifer. Anyways.
0: And if you want to read more about that, you can pick up the philosophy of Blade Runner 2049, edited co edited by Dr. Robin Butts. Which philosophy of Blade the whole, Runner? Yeah. Yeah, we still Blade need to do it.
1: It's available in all good bookstores, and um, and your chapter, your, your in the plural chapter, fantastic, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the real highlights of the book.
0: Yeah, it goes I, in great depth on that, yeah.
1: I, I wanted to pick up on Patrick's point about... Um, the hiddenness of the Wallace building and all the things that the Wallace building is hiding. And I mentioned earlier, a kind of distinction between modernism as an architectural movement and postmodernism as an architectural movement. And it seems to me, again, one of the distinctions between brutalism as I have experienced it in the real world and brutalism as it is expressed in the Wallace building is that the Wallace building appears to be taking the aesthetics of brutalism without the underlying philosophy. And that strikes me as being like the fundamental feature of postmodern architecture. Postmodern architecture is about pastiche. It's about, you know, oh, let's um, let's throw up a building with some art deco features and some references to classical temples. And let's mix that in with some raw concrete because we like the look of that. And so it's about pastiching styles in order to create an aesthetic effect with no regard whatsoever to truth to materials, to expressing um, um, function through form or anything like that. So, yeah, so I think Wallace is using the aesthetic of brutalism, um, but in a way which is in no sense related to the original kind of uh, the original truth to materials um, of, of the brutalist architects we've been talking about.
0: Now, for a hell of a weird segue coming off of that, if, if I can move us along a little bit, because it's getting late and the sun is rising for Dr. Bunce shortly. Um, Another movement that I think has very little to do with the materials that it's actually created from is neoclassical architecture, right? And we of course get a a we get to dwell in a neoclassical building for quite some time because it's where Deckard is hiding out in Las Vegas. So Las Vegas, right, in general, the, the Vegas that we see is very much a Sid Mead-esque landscape of these just fantastical, you know, crazy towers and these beautiful um spires and and things and of course these you know kind of hideous sexualized giant women everywhere but 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 it's something where it's very commercial it clearly reminds at least me of dubai of you know of of an emirate or something it's it's or saudi arabia it's this it's this place where there's just tons of money and they're building something in the desert which we talked a little bit on our conceptual design episode as well uh hubristic right it's like we're going to go into the middle of the desert we're going to build something impossible and we're going to make it as extraordinary and ridiculous as we can because we can afford to do so right but um, one, of the, one of the the largest buildings in this thing that we get to spend a lot of time in is so um, uh, strangely juxtaposed with the rest of the architecture in the film, and that is this huge old casino that Deckard finds himself in, which is um, so, of course, you know, there's postmodernism, which is a reaction against modernism, right? Where it's sort of it's sort of a big middle finger to it that is infusing you know modernist uh, aesthetics with humor and trying to like blow things apart and deconstructivize it, right? Um, neoclassical architecture is, uh, is similarly a response to classical architecture, but it's something very different. Neoclassical architecture is aping the look of classical architecture to try to come across as being, um, you know, beautiful, as being classically symmetrical as being something that is, you know, very much like the music of Mozart, which is, which is, you know, perfectly proportioned and in line with these sort of, you know, ancient truths about form and symmetry and blah, 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 blah. Um, so you have that kind of like overriding aesthetic going on with this old casino, and then of course on the interior of it, you have these baroque things going on all over the place. You have these balustrades and these crazy, you know, moldings and these and all of these just sort of hideous looking, but very fun and fanciful, very are very old for this time period. Things. I mean, you you consider like this casino was probably not built within the twenty years prior to this film, it's probably like a relic from before the events of the first movie. To me, like when, when I see that casino, I see it as as a relic of a previous era that has sort of just been standing there forever because it was, you know, kind of a golden nugget situation where it's one of the first big casinos that, you know, hit in Las Vegas and it just was propped up, you know, forever. Um, and it comes across uh, as uh, kind of anachronistic to me. It comes across like so surreal and it's even more surreal because it's coated in that orange dust And it's in this otherworldly Martian environment. It really looks like Mars. And so it's like looking at this just gigantic, empty, ridiculous, over-the-top Las Vegas casino from 40 or 50 years prior to the events of the film on the surface of another planet is, is such an interesting aesthetic to me.
1: On that note, I think one of the things I love about the buildings in Blade Runner 2049 and all of the structures is that they have, they imply a history that we are not privy to. Um, So the LAPD building, you know, who knows which era of the city's life that comes from. Um, The Wallace building, I understand that when they were designing it, um, they designed it in such a way to show the process of weathering at different stages as the building went up to imply that the building is built over a period of years. Um, And the, and the, radio telescope dishes, which have been upended and have become orphanages. Again, I wouldn't call it architecture as such, but they are kind of structures and there is clearly a history there and we're not privy to what that history was. You know, did they fall down by accident? Were they upended in a last desperate attempt to provide some shelter before government completely collapsed outside the city walls? You know, all of these things are kind of implied and we can speculate about them. But I think that's one of the joys of the filmmaking. The film They create a plausible world by creating structures which have an implied history. And I do love that about this movie
2: well i think we could probably call this a part one
0: yeah this clearly is another episode sitting in yeah. this thing we yeah. haven't gotten to yet <laughs> um because I, I would love to talk about Staline's, you know building oh, and, and yeah, a number Stalin's, of other structures in the film yeah. this this film is any architect nerd's dream come true because it is just full of mm. just very mm. beautiful renderings of these things that like have so much historical resonance for so many reasons and it's so beautifully laid out and the art and Soul of blade runner is a book that if, if people listening to this don't have it yet they should really pick up because it is just a, an astounding testament to the amount of work that went into this just like interlinked the conceptual art was this is just it's just um it's just amazing and you get to read about you know the, the journey that it took to getting to this production design place where um, you know, Denny and Roger Deakins uh, rented out a hotel room in Montreal for like a month and a half or something. And they just hold themselves up in this, in this hotel. And they were like, hey, can we pull this guy and can we pull this guy? In? And then Dennis Gassner shows up and he's like, oh, this looks really cool. What if we just do this? And then for like, something like 14 months after that, those three people were just sending each other sketches of things just, you know, every weekend, depending on whatever project they were working on, because this world was beginning to take shape for them. And, um, you know, we talk a lot on the show about how it's, it's amazing because we only get to really see the finished product. And then we get this experience of going back and finding out how that finished product came to be. And movies are like that. Like we don't get to see, you know, when a building is being built down the street from us, we get to go see the scaffolding Mm -hmm. go up. We get to see where the service core is and think, oh, that's probably like where it's going to go. We get to see elevations of it. We get to kind of get a sense of what it's going to be. And then all of a sudden it's there and we're like, wow, you know, it exists but with movies, before they come out, in almost all cases, we really don't know what we're going to get, right? We see glimpses of it in the trailer, or our friends see it and they say something about it. But but we sit there in that theater and we see a fully realized thing. And then we have this weird detective work that we get to do as fans, where we go back and we say, how did this actually happen? Right? Um, and we are so lucky that we have Tanya Point. Again, I can't say this enough for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that she does such a beautiful job of capturing that for us. And that a lot of that detective work is done so incredibly well by her and her team. And I feel like um, the art and soul of Blade Runner captures that so beautifully. This movie that feels impossible, as we mentioned many times, feels like the impossible miracle, uh, wasn't a miracle at all like we've talked about on this show already tonight, right? A miracle is something that you can't perceive the way it was put together. It's something magical, right? Mm. But 2049 is something that was built. 2049 is something that people came together and made. Just like Denis Villeneuve says, 2049 Mm. is poetry made by a collective of people. Um, And that is something that borders on miraculous to me at the end of the day, is that they could come up with something this ineffable and this unforgettable working together on a tight timeline with a budget and with all these other considerations and come across with a visual poem that we can have a whole freaking show dedicated to and not even scratch the surface of, you know?
1: It's just amazing. Mm. Absolutely. What a great note to end on.
2: Indeed. Well, everyone, thank you for listening um, to this part one. We will be back with a part two to talk about the Staline structure and uh, every, everything else that we didn't get into, which will include the original we talked about this on um, on the the art direction of Blade Runner 2049, but really there's a whole discussion of some of the original designs of these buildings and how much they look like 2019 and then how they pulled back from that to give us something that was not recognizable essentially. So we'll get into that. Um, thank you, Dr. Robin Bunce for coming on the show as always for staying up late. Uh, we promise that my pleasure we won't we won't have you do this again but uh, for those of for those of you listening we have a great uh, program uh, through Patreon if you want to support us for two bucks a month you get uh, two other shows Um, as a supporter go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support and uh, sign up if you want to support the show and all that money goes back into um Fees and hosting fees and all that kind of thing. So thank you so much. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.